Last week, which was the first Sunday of Advent, this being the second, last week we spent a good deal of time on how the first and the second comings of Christ are sort of locked together, such that the first coming is the second coming in advance, right? Tuesday's pizza is Friday's pizza in advance, we said. And this helps explain why in these traditional Advent readings we find texts that don't seem at first glance to be Christmas texts, but rather these are texts that are oriented to the second coming. In fact, you can see that from another angle in this morning's Old Testament and Gospel lessons, which are about John the Baptist. You might think, what is John the Baptist doing in a Christmas story? He shows up 30 years after Jesus is born. Well, he's in the Christmas story because he says the coming of this one is the one who has the winnowing fork already in his hand, who stands ready right, to burn up the chaff and to gather his wheat into the barn. Right? He's the refining fire promised in Malachi 3 so that his appearance brings the fiery day of the Lord into our history. That's why John the Baptist is in the Christmas readings. So, this logic gives us a set of texts. Advent readings like we saw last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and like our text today, which is from Philippians 1. So, we'll look at the passage under the two headings that are on the back inside page. Advent Thanksgiving and Advent Intercession. So first, the Thanksgiving. So Paul writes from from prison, let us not forget. He writes this delightful little letter to the Philippian church. Unlike the Corinthian church, this is a congregation that brings him a lot of joy. Now Paul, we saw last week, he gives thanks for the Corinthians. But the language here is much warmer. And more vigorous, right? The the joy and the affection he has for the Philippians is deep and pervasive. And frankly, it's passionate. This is passionate language. He says in verse 7, I thank my God every time I remember you. He remembers Lydia, his first convert. He remembers the Philippian jailer and his household, and many others, I'm sure. But he had seen these people, this church at Philippi, embrace the gospel through his own ministry, and he cherishes them. I thank my God every time I remember you. And notice verse 4. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for joy. This is a very deep bond of love. Every time, all my prayers, all of you, always, with joy. He says, it's right that I feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Now, if we think that maybe there's a little hyperbole going on here, you know, a little opening of the letter, hyperbole, Paul will state things with even more provocative force in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, God can testify. Do you know what that is? That's an oath. It's an oath. Paul is calling on God as a witness to what he has said about his affections for them. 
If you think I'm exaggerating when I say this about my affections for you, I call God as my witness. What can God testify to? The text tells us that God can testify to how I long for all of you. Right, so this is not like introductory niceties or boilerplate stuff, just general opening pleasantries. Paul backs up this language of affection that he has for the whole community with a divine oath. And, and that is not the most astonishing thing here. The most astonishing thing comes at the end of verse 8. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, he's talking about something more than merely imitating the affection of Jesus here or the compassion of Jesus. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus is asserting that my heart is so united to Christ that his very affection for you has become mine. Christ's own affection is the affection that I have for you. This is how Paul prays for the Philippian church. Now, I don't think we can pray in this mood all the time. And Paul doesn't speak quite this way about other churches. But it is a challenging example, I think, and at Advent, a luminous example, a prod of how a Christian community could and should feel for and pray for one another. Right? These are the kinds of things we should aspire to say about everyone in the community. And this kind of affection can't be fabricated. You can't cultivate this by praying harder. It exists prior to prayer. It's organic. It flows from the deep love the community shares with one another in Christ. So if this is how Paul gives thanks, then what is the why? Why does he give thanks? Well, the answer is simple. It's in verse 5. Because of your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. From the very beginning of his ministry down to this present imprisonment, this is a church which has shouldered the burden of advancing the gospel with the apostle. Right? They've met practical needs. They've prayed. They've showed personal concern. They've partnered to advance the cause of Christ. And thus he says, you're in my heart, whether I'm in chains or whether I'm defending and confirming the gospel because you share the grace of God together with me. The gospel of God is the unifying factor here. So that Paul's gratitude for them and his affection for them, they are gospel gratitude and affection. It's not simply that Paul thinks the Philippians are swell. right? You're the nicest, sweetest people, so I have the greatest affection for you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you have partnered with me in the gospel. You have partaken of the grace of God. Right? These are people who have responded to the gospel in a full-orbed way. They are gospel people. That's what we want to be here. That's what you should aspire to be. These are gospel people, grace people, kingdom people. The Philippian church is not fitting the gospel into their lives. 
they are reorienting their lives around the gospel. And those are different kinds of communities. They have a partnership and a sharing together in Paul's apostolic mission. They don't think, well, Paul does the gospel and we do the stay-at-home stuff. They're defending the gospel and confirming it with them. And that's why Paul prays with this great, great confidence. It is not the job of leaders or the evangelism committee, for that matter, though these things can be of great help. It is the job of everyone sitting here to partner and to advance the gospel, to pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And to that end, we'll have some training coming up in January on that. More about that in future. So look at verse 6. Paul prays, being confident of this. The confidence that he prays with is rooted in this. That the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, there it is. The day of Christ Jesus the second advent of our Lord, right in the middle of the opening note of gratitude. And before we're all done, he'll mention it again. Just as he mentioned it twice in his opening note of gratitude last week in 1 Corinthians 1. Right? I mean, I think I could take all the notes I've ever written, either by email or by hand, to every Christian friend of mine, and all the notes I've ever received back, And I can guarantee you there is not in the first sentence or two any references to the day of Christ Jesus. We could write thousands of letters to thousands of Christians in thousands of situations and never get that in. For Paul, it just starts falling out of the letter. I'm Paul, you're an apostle, you're a Philippi, boom, eschaton. It's just the way he thinks. It should shock you when you read this. I'd like to know in every letter that you've ever written to another Christian where and when in the opening sentence or two the day of Christ appears. For Paul, in his letters, all the time. It's deep in his DNA. He can barely give thanks before he's talking about the day. So what's the ground of this this confidence in the Philippians' ultimate salvation? He says it was God who began a good work in them. God quickened you from death to life by the preaching of the gospel. And that same God will carry that work into that day. Paul will say in the next chapter of this letter, he will say, on that day, I hope it will be shown that I did not run or labor in vain. So he's full of hope for them because his confidence is in the godness of God. His thinking is like this. I think the apostle thinks this way. If conversion is a kind of resurrection from the dead, then the God who does that will bring it to completion on the future day of resurrection. Right? There's a deep logic here. Paul's not just throwing the day of Christ in because he wants to like shoehorn it in there. And it's a logic we're probing this, this Christmas season. Right? Between embracing the gospel of the Christ who has appeared and being perfected 
for that Christ's second appearance. To be raised from the dead in the gospel is to already be placed in the resurrection order, which is to come. That's why Paul thinks like this. He's completely confident, completely confident that what God begins, God finishes. Calvin has a beautiful little uh, piece of reasoning on this, a little logical syllogism. It goes like this. He says, God does not forsake the work his own hands have begun. We are the work of his hands. Therefore, he will complete the work he has begun in us. This is the ultimate reason that Paul prays so exuberantly for this church. It would be a wretched assurance if this completion were up to us. You'd have to write another hymn called Wretched Assurance. Jesus is mine. I hope it's a foretaste of glory divine. But it would never yield the confidence, sure and strong, that Paul has here. And Paul has no confidence in the Philippians. He doesn't think they're any better than you or I. Right? We blow hot and cold. We're firm, then we're unstable. Right? We keep our resolutions for 30 or 45 seconds. Right? We should not be, I'm not confident in myself or my resolve or my piety. Certainly not confident in some minister's persona. Right? Paul's confidence here is in the Philippians. I mean, in the Philippians is in their God, right? The confidence in the Philippians is that the God who did this, who raised you out of darkness from the dead, that God can keep you. And so all of this thanksgiving and all of this affection and all of this confidence, right, shown in their embrace of the gospel, for Paul, all of these things point to the day. The day when he comes to be glorified. As Calvin says, when hope is treated, our eyes must be fixed firmly on the blessed resurrection. So that's how Paul prays. That's how he's praying. The second point, Advent intercession, is really what Paul prays. What does he pray? And you can see this This starts in verse 9. This is my prayer, he says. Remember, he actually, he's been praying for them, but he hasn't actually prayed anything of content for them. That starts in verse 9. This is what he asks for, that our love may abound more and more. If the Philippians had received this love, right? They had demonstrated it. But Paul wants them to excel even more. And he leaves the object of the love unspecified, which means he wants you to abound in love for God and for human beings, right? All things, all creatures, He wants us to abound in this very luxuriant, Paul's desire is. He says, I want you to abound, but not just abound, he says. I want you to abound more and more in this love. It is really like all of Paul's prayers, very audacious, very God-centered and high. He wants supernatural charity like a river to flow forth from us. That's what he's praying for. The divine love, which is the Holy Trinity, which has been poured out into your heart by the Spirit, he wants you to abound in that love more and more. 
This is the long war. He doesn't think this is a magical moment or a miracle in which we suddenly become loving. He thinks this is the work of sanctity, the long work of sanctity which God has begun in you and is carrying on. But notice he doesn't think, if you look at the text, he doesn't think that love, as great as it is, stands alone. He goes on to say that your love must abound in knowledge and in depth of insight. Love without knowledge is often blind and sentimental and uncritical. It's very important to see this. True love cannot work without knowledge, for you cannot love what you do not know. Right? Right? The more we know God, the more we can love God. It's true there's a kind of knowledge which puffs up. That's true. And which defiles love. But Paul's not talking about that here. He's talking about knowledge and depth of insight which forms and shapes and directs love. That's what he prays for, this depth of insight, this discernment, which is a kind of skill, prudence in practical thinking and action. So if you think of love as a plant, like an organic living thing, then knowledge and insight are like the stakes for the growing plants, right? They guide it, they direct it, they stabilize the plant. They enable it to flourish. So love, he says, with knowledge and insight, so that, notice those two words in the text. I'm going to come back to them. So that we might be able to discern what is best. Right? This is a critical idea in Paul, this discerning what is best, Right? It's being able to tell what is excellent and essential and superior from what is secondary or inferior. What I like to call order and proportion, right? Order and proportion. That comes from love that has the gift of discernment and insight. And here, this is the second time now in five five introductory lines. I pray all this so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Right, that's the whole goal of his praying. That, a, that this people, that this Philippian church, in 50-something A.D., might stand blameless on the day of Christ. If he prays that way for this congregation, then how much more should we who are nearer to that day pray for our congregations? And by the way, there's a raft of prayers like this in the New Testament. Peter prays exactly the same way. He says, now you have struggles so that your faith may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. We could go on for half the morning. I'll give you one more example from Paul among many. He says this, may the Lord strengthen your hearts so that, same two words we have here, you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God the Father when our Lord Jesus comes with this holy one. In short, you know what's happening here? When Paul prays for the Philippians, he is praying for their complete, total sanctification and not merely some ad hoc current need of the hour. Right? What you might call interrupt-driven prayer. This came up, we should pray for it. That came up, we should pray for it. This person had this issue, we should pray for that. Those things have to be prayed for, but Paul moves instinctively from those things to their total perfection 
in the grace of the gospel. He prays for their glory, right? For their radiant coming future glory, which is already underway. And thus he prays for them to stand in the day of Christ. Right? The fact that the coming of Christ might be thousands or millions or frankly trillions of years away is not relevant for Paul in 50-something A.D. It shapes his prayer life. It's a present, pressing concern. Because why? Because the gospel is that glory inaugurated. Right? Grace is glory begun. It's a beautiful thing. As one commentator on this verse put it, preparation for the day of the Lord was for Paul neither a pious platitude nor an obsession with the millennium, but a way of life. So I'm going to close with two points, and here I'm just going to reiterate the two points of the sermon, thanksgiving and intercession. So first, thanksgiving. Christ has appeared. Christ has appeared. The glory to come has already manifested itself in public, in history. Right? And that's why there's an everlasting gospel to proclaim. Right? And that, that Christ and his gospel is why we are bound together here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. We are partners in the gospel. We have no other mission. We are partners together in the gospel. We're in an intimate fellowship for the confirmation, for the defense for the propagation of the grace of God which has appeared in Jesus Christ. And if that's so, and it is, then we want to continue to cultivate deeper bonds of affection. We want to be able to speak with integrity the language Paul speaks here, this language of longing and joy and gratitude. Because this kind of love is the kind of love that convinces the world of the integrity of the gospel. Right? So, so praying and working for that ethos of gratitude and affection, that's a noble Advent aspiration. So the second thing I want to point out in closing is intercession itself. One of the advantages, there's many, but one of the advantages of Advent is that it should be for us a season of renewal in our prayer lives especially for one another. Right? We seek to imitate Paul because he imitates Christ. So on this prayer, and the actual content of the prayer is in verses 9 through 11. So on this prayer in verse 9 through 11, I ask a simple question. I ask it of myself. Do we pray like this for one another? You know, in reflecting on this particular prayer and in searching my memory, I do not believe that I have ever heard, or if it's so, it's very rare, not in one-on-one prayers, not in small prayer groups, not in an evening service, not in a morning service, not from a minister, not from anyone. And we pray for things like Paul prays for, like we pray for love, we pray for knowledge, we pray for wisdom, we pray for other virtues, we pray for peace, we pray for guidance, we pray for salvation, we pray for our friends, we pray for our children, we pray for our family, we pray for our work associates, 
Right? We pray for unbelievers. We pray for the world. We pray for the nations. But what I believe I've never heard are these two words and the phrase that follows them after all the requests are made. Right? So what is absent? Right? We pray for person X to have A and B and C and D from the Lord. Here's what's absent. These two words. So that. And then this phrase. They may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. I do not believe I have ever heard another Christian say that in a prayer. We don't pray that or add anything like that to the end of our prayers. I mean, we'd like them to be pure and blameless, to be sure. But for the day of Christ, that's an afterthought. Who prays like that for their children? Oh, Lord, give Johnny your peace. He's struggling. He has a test. Give him your guidance and wisdom so that he might be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. What do we care about that? He's a nine-year-old boy. The day of Christ's way out there. Get this day of Christ stuff out of here. We got practical things to pray for for Johnny. There is no so that. Right? Our prayer is just simply oriented to the present order of things. We want things to go Christianly and better for people in the present age. That's why there's no so that. Paul sees a deep organic connection between the fruit that fills our lives now, between the gospel and that full-grown tree, that fruit that's going to be harvest fruit, to come forth in splendor on that day. That's why he does this. He thinks the gospel is glory that is the age to come already begun in us. So for him, every prayer has this, even if he doesn't say it. You know how we instinctively end, and it's a, it's a fine practice, we end every prayer with, in the name of Jesus, right, or something like that. Paul instinctively has underneath every prayer, if it's not on the surface, so that all of you might be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. I'll close with his benediction. Here's a prayer for the Thessalonians. Again, this is how Paul prays in 50 AD. May God himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. That's Advent praying. We do something else. It's noble what we do. It's good. But this is a text which calls us to abound more and more with greater depth of insight and discernment and thus greater love. This is Advent praying. Go and do likewise. Amen. Amen.